Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Ethical Preparedness to the All-American Podcast. He's a police officer and a prepper who has an outstanding YouTube channel that provides excellent advice on prepping. And he touches on everything from food storage to firearms use and how to manage encounters with the police in a multitude of situations. He hosts one of my absolute favorite YouTube channels, so it is my pleasure to introduce and interview Ethical Preparedness. EP, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. So before we get into a lot of the prepping, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your take on the George Floyd situation and the ensuing violence and rioting. What, if anything, can you tell us about what you saw in the arresting officer's behavior as he had Mr. Floyd pinned to the ground on his, with his knee? And did his actions reflect any official training that you're aware of? No, his, his actions did not reflect any um, training. That I, I don't know of any police department or police academy that trains to keep somebody pinned um, in that position for that long, whether by their neck or anything, you know, and it's obviously dependent on the situation, but in that situation there, uh, I don't know of any uh, training that's given across the United States. And pretty much every police officer across the United States that I have seen that's done posting on it or has made mention of it was like, we are not trained to do that. And um, myself, very upset by it, and I have not, even in private, even in private conversations with other police officers, I have not seen one police officer that thought that that was a good use of force. So I'm curious, where did this officer get that from? Why did he do it? And why were other officers standing around watching this happen without intervening? You know, that is a very good question, and I think a lot of it is probably because we don't see what led up to that, uh, led up to that situation. I know there's some little bits of video here and there, uh, and of course, most of what's happening to him, I think, from my understanding, is hidden from, is hidden behind the car, um, is still, um, it still does not make what they did right, all right? So don't, don't confuse me there, please. Or not you, but any of your uh, listeners. Um, but I think that once people probably get the whole story, as time goes on and as more of the whole story plays out and we get more information and we get more context, I think, you know, those probably will be some people say, oh, okay, I can understand why they did that. It wasn't right, but now that kind of answers that question of why uh, they did what they did. So I, I don't think they intentionally killed him. Does that make sense? I mean, I personally don't. I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of conspiracy theory out there, and I'm not saying that the conspiracy theory is not correct. I just know there's a lot of theories out there, but I got a feeling that as uh, as more information comes out, then we'll find out why those officers acted the way they did, uh, and even if it's not right. 
I hope I articulated that correctly. Yes, I you did. Without being there, with seeing just a little bit of video snippets, it appears that the officers got dispatched on the report of a person passing a fake $20 bill or, or some fake money, which is a very common run that we get dispatched on. You'd be surprised of how much funny money is out there. With today's printers and stuff like that, there's a lot of um, fake money, uh, counterfeit money going uh, being passed around. And so <clears throat> when they went to stopping, at some point, when they was trying to remove him from his car, he was not fighting, resisting. You know, he wasn't resisting as in fighting, but he, I could see by the video that he was resisting being removed from his car. He was holding on to his car. The officer had a hold of him and, and was trying to pull him out of his car. Not like pulling, like heaving, pulling like, you know, uh, real hard, but that officer was trying to get him out of his car, and he was not uh, coming out of his car. And so what I have a sneaky suspicion of of what occurred was uh, he ended up resisting and uh, from what I read they wanted to put him into a car he started saying he was claustrophobic claustrophobic <clears throat> so it sounds like he probably ended up resisting and they got him down got him handcuffed he was probably still kicking squirming around so they decided to put their weight on him to keep him from kicking around or squirming around anymore now, here's where it gets confusing, and it might be confusing for me to, 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 uh, to, to explain this correctly, so I'm, I'm hoping I can do this correctly. You usually, obviously not in this case, but you, you, you usually do less damage to a person by using multiple officers using their body weight to keep a person down rather than having just one or two officers. Uh, to to keep somebody down if it's one officer by himself or maybe sometimes just a second officer and you are trying to hold somebody down that leaves a lot of body parts you know even on a, even a handcuffed person leaves their legs to kick both legs to kick uh, their head to flail around stuff like that and so you actually have to use if it's the lesser the number of police officers the more force the more uh, brute strength that an officer has to use to keep somebody um, pinned down. The more officers you have, you know, you can put one officer on one leg, another officer on another leg, another officer on one shoulder, another officer on another shoulder, and those individual, uh, each officer's body weight um, keeps the person pinned down better. So you, by using more officers, you usually... Um, do less harm by having more officers using their body weight. So instead of having to strike somebody to keep them from uh, kicking you or using pepper spray or doing a pressure point or doing some kind of pain to get to gain compliance, if you just have more officers and they do their body weight, then you that's actually more gentle on the person. But um, one of the things that we are taught is when somebody is on their stomach, um, they have to, their chest has to be able to raise up and down uh, for them to breathe. All right. And so that's one of the things that we are cognizant of as police officers, that when you got somebody down and you got them on their stomach, um, you, 
you know, you that's called positional asphyxiation. And the more heavier somebody is, the more that is a concern. Because if you get like an obese person, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make fun of people that have weight, body weight issues or anything like that. But if you have an obese person and they're on their stomach and handcuffed, uh, you don't even, some, sometimes you don't even have to have an officer on top of them. Just their own body weight will keep them from being able to expand their chest to be able to breathe. And so, I, no, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I wanted to ask you because I, I, you're making some great points here and it's all about training but it doesn't appear that these officers reverted to their training. And that I think is what is confusing for people who are assuming that it would be automatic. You drill, you drill and you practice. So those things you're talking about are supposed to be automatic, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm, what I'm wondering is, and this is just wondering because I wasn't there um, I wasn't there to witness it. I don't know what was going on in those officers' minds. Uh, I'm wondering if, you know, he, when he wasn't getting out of the car, what, what was he telling them when he was, you know, obviously when you're trying to pull somebody from a car, a suspect that's, that's, that's been identified as having passed or s suspected anyways at that point of passing a fake $20 bill, what was he saying when he was refusing to get out of his car then when he was, you know, what did he say between the point that they did finally get him out of the car and then they was trying to put, them, put him into a squad car and then he started saying he was claustrophobic. I suspect, again, I don't know this because I wasn't there, but I suspect that when he was saying that he couldn't breathe, that I suspect that they didn't believe him. Well, and you're right. There always is more to the story than we see on television, of course. Yeah. And, that, and that's just a suspicion. I always want to preface with this, without being there, with only seeing little bits and pieces and getting just a little bit of information. And of course, it's from the media. So <laughs> how much can you believe there? Uh, suspicions of mine that when I kind of, you know, compare this to situations that I've had, you know, um, I mean, how many times have I pulled somebody over that was swerving on the road? You get up to their car, you get, you pull them over, you, you get up to their car, they're telling you they have chest pain, so you call paramedics out there, <laughs> and the person's trying to fake a heart attack to keep from going to jail because they're drunk driving. You know, the paramedics come, they check out their pulse, they do all their different readings, and they say, well, his heart's perfectly fine, but we smell alcohol really strong on his breath, <laughs> you know, so... Um, unfortunately, um, and here's where these officers probably made the hugest mistakes of their lives is we, even when we feel like somebody's lying to us, we still err on the side of caution. So when somebody says that they can't breathe, even if they've told us a load of crap before that, we err on the side of caution. Uh, and we, you know, get them set up on their, at, at minimum, you get them on, in the, in the uh, rescue position where they're on their side, you know, it, or if you can't get them set up. Now, if they're still kicking and squirming and stuff like that, um, you know, you do, you do what you got to do. And, and, you know, here's something I don't think that many people are thinking about. I think everybody, and I could be completely wrong on this as more information comes out. 
I think everybody is focusing on that officer that was on his neck, but I can't help but to wonder if the officer that was at most fault for the guy's death was if that was the guy that was actually putting his weight on his back because that's what would keep the guy from being able to expand his chest to actually breathe. Now, usually when you got a neck on a knee on somebody's neck, unless you got it over the windpipe, that's not stopping them from breathing. But you put a big weight on somebody's back and that keeps their chest from expanding for them able to breathe. So I actually wonder if the officer that was on the guy's back wasn't more responsible for the guy's death than the guy that's on the, that was on his neck. Now, don't get me wrong. They're all responsible. Is that so? Uh, hopefully I kind of articulated that correctly. Yeah, so that's, that's quite fascinating. And I'd like to shift a little bit to what we're seeing now with the aftermath of his death and the explosion of rioting across the country. And I'm curious, what can and should people expect from police officers that are de deployed to respond to riots? What is the, the, the strategy that police are using? What are they trying to achieve? And how are they going to engage these dangerous situations? Well, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that is really going to vary from area to area. You will have some area, and those areas will a lot of times will, will depend on who the chiefs of police and the mayors and stuff like that are, how the, uh, how the government leaders are. So you'll have some areas where the cops may just totally just evacuate an area and just, and just get told to pull out. And then you'll have that. And then you might have other areas where the cops really come in and, um, and hammer not the protesters but the rioters and so one thing that i have seen through the police world um and then also with talking with other police officers is we do differentiate between uh protesters and rioters and what do you see as that differentiation well Protesting is a First Amendment right. And so Peaceably as long assembling. as... Do what? Peaceably assembling, correct? Correct. And, and uh, address grievances... Or what's the wording? Redress. Redress grievance, grievances against the, uh, the government. So uh, protesting is where it's, you, you know, you're not injuring people and you are not um, destroying property. Now... You know, and I've seen a lot of um, a lot of areas say, okay, you know, if protesters want to block streets and walk down the street, um, you know what, we're going to go ahead and allow that too. And I think a lot of that depends on which streets they're they're blocking if it if it's allowed or not. So if it's well, blocking a major street leading to a major emergency room hospital, you know, then then they might try to push the protesters from those streets where they would allow them to walk down other streets. Yeah, you're making a great point here because we've seen in some cities they've blocked freeways and major thoroughfares, and we know that a lot of ambulances or fire trucks try to use those thoroughfares, and in some cases um, people might have their lives endangered. So if the police have to clear off a freeway, I would imagine they're going to do it forcefully. Yeah. And am I correct in that assumption? 
Well, it it's first starts with warnings. You know, they go over the loudspeakers. Hey, this has got to be clear. This is no longer a legal um, assembly. You know, you're blocking, you know, you know, you're blocking a hospital, whatever. But they, the first comes the warnings. Then comes the uh, probably the pepper balls and, uh, and stuff like that closer to the uh, to the crowds of people. And I'm talking in generalities here, you know. Mm -hmm. I can't say this is what will happen 100% of the, of the time because as soon as I say that, then a police department in California or wherever might do it completely different. But first would come the warnings, then would come the, uh, the gas and stuff like that, the, the chemical irritants in the area so that people get a little taste of it and say, and hopefully say, well, maybe we should leave before, you know, this is bad enough. I don't want it directly in my eyes or whatever, or directly inhaling it. And then if that doesn't work, um, then, uh, then actually, you know, shooting the pepper balls or whatever at the people that are still refusing to leave. Uh, and, and in between that would probably come with them, uh, with the police trying to physically remove the protesters. And then if the protesters actually physically resist, then might come the pepper balls or the tear gas or whatever. So it's interesting, you talk about um, different departments having different techniques, and some may deploy a little bit more aggressively than others, and it may also depend on what geographic location a protest or a riot is taking place in. But you also mentioned that some police departments may withdraw, and we've seen this happen, for example, in Seattle, and the establishment of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. I'm curious, what do you think is going on in the minds of the Seattle Police Department when they've effectively had to abandon their precinct? Probably, I'm guessing some probably pretty low morale. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that happens with police officers after so long, you kind of end up getting educated to where you're kind of stuck in policing. So I've been a cop for 19 years and I'm, I'm getting burnt out. I'm just getting burnt out. I'm getting burnt out on working weird shifts. I'm getting burnt out on working Christmas days and, and uh, uh, dealing with drunks and, and stuff like that. And, and uh, so I'm like, man, I'd really like to get into another line of work, but I don't know what else to do. I, I know how to write search warrants. I know how to hunt down criminals, you know, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to do anything else that would actually support my family. Now, uh, as much as, as, as I'm burnt out, I, I still love police work. I'm just getting burnt out in today's times, I guess you call it. And you so, don't want to go to law school. <laughs> so, well, I'm too old. I'm almost 50 years old now, you know. Um, but I would say there's probably a lot of guys there that was like, man, I would love to work for another police department. Uh, how did I end up at this police department? Probably, like I said, low morale, but I got a feeling that a lot of these cops are saying, you know what? These people were voted in. These politicians that are making all these silly decisions, you know what? They, 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 they've got their, uh, they, they, they wrote their tune and now they're going to have to sing it. So, um, this is the fault of the politicians that's allowed this to happen. And I imagine that those cities are going to face a lot more strife because of this. 
I can't see that there is an easy way out of this for them. The police probably don't want to go in uh, anymore to a place that they've been effectively rejected from. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the city council appears to be endorsing uh, the violence and the mob rule there. Yeah, there's, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I am glad that I work in a conservative area mm -hmm. and I do not work in a uh, extremely liberal area because I, I, I would not be able to do it. I just would not be able to do it. Well, if we could just briefly shift over to um, your prepping now, uh, we spend a lot of time on George Floyd, and of course we should because that is the main issue of the day. But I did want to talk a little bit about uh, your YouTube channel as well. So okay. I'm, I'm curious, as a police officer, what got you into prepping and starting your channel? And also, are there a lot of police preppers out there? Um, you know, you got to quit asking these divided questions. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, uh, after I answer the first question, uh, remind me of this of part. Absolutely. Two. No problem. Uh, if I was really smart, if I was intelligent, I would have been a firefighter. So uh, <laughs> that's my joke there. Hey, um, so what got me into prepping was before I, um, Several numerous years before I even became a police officer, uh, Y2K was on the loom. And I was, I think, I'm not certain here, but I think I was in my mid-20s, early 20s when that was going to happen. And that was what told me that our way of life was could easily stop that was the first time i ever realized oh we're dependent on food getting delivered to the grocery store it doesn't magically arrive there oh we're dependent on this we're dependent on that that's what made me realize that our our system was frail that could stop food from being delivered water coming out of our faucets atms to quit working gas pumps to shut down stuff like that now, I didn't act on that, but that's what made me realize that, you know, hey, our cozy way of life could come to an end. And then, after I became a police officer, then I started thinking about prepping. That's when I actually heard about um, other people that was, was preparing for, you know, grid down situations or whatever. So that, that planted the seed in my mind, you know, hey, Y2K showed me that, you know, our way of life, could, our easy way of life could stop very easily. And then when I found out, you know, about other preppers, then that put that seed in my mind, maybe I should start prepping myself, but I still didn't act on it. But what actually made me act on prepping was a couple years after I became a police officer, maybe five or six years after becoming a police, don't quote me on the time frame, but several years after having become a police officer, I was working the, uh, I believe it was a Christmas Eve morning. It wasn't Christmas day, but it was either Christmas Eve or the day before Christmas Eve. But it was, I was at work really early and a police officer at a nearby mall in a, in a, pretty rough area a police officer at the mall started yelling for help um, said that there was a riot going uh, 
And so every police officer in the area responded. And this, this, this mall was actually outside of my area, but because he was asking, asking for everybody, uh, I, I went ahead and responded too. And what it was is this mall had a sale for some type of uh, limited release tennis shoe. I don't know, Air Jordan. I, I don't know what brand it was. But this mall was having this a big sale of this limited release tennis shoe. And the mall was supposed to open up at 7 a.m. But when the mall security saw this, this huge crowd that had gathered outside and they realized they didn't have enough shoes to sell to everybody, the, the mall security did not open the doors right at 7 a.m. because they was trying to come up with a plan B, you know, like, do we only allow the first 100 people in, whatever. So when the mall, when the mall did not open their doors, this, this, uh, this mob actually ripped the doors off to the front of the mall. And these are big, huge doors, you know what I mean? And like, they, like Friday in some way. Yeah. And uh, they just, the, this mob just rioted and stormed this mall to go in and get these shoes. And so when I got there, you know, we weren't pepper spraying people. We weren't um, hitting people with clubs or nothing. People were running in and running around uh, like crazy people, but we only went after people that were physically fighting. And then we just really pulled them apart and told them to get out of there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but then I, that struck me that left a lasting thing with me. I was like, my gosh, if people act like this over tennis shoes, what are they, how are they going to act if, if food quits being delivered to the grocery store? Yeah, that is amazing. And, and we've seen some of that already with um, the stores being emptied out with the coronavirus pandemic. So we've Correct. seen people yeah. get in fights over food already. <clears throat> and we were just, what, a couple of weeks into lockdowns and this started happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was pretty, what, what happened with COVID-19 um, was, I think, was very mild as far as the grocery stores went. You know, there was some shortages of stuff, but nobody went hungry. Uh, but so my big thing is, man, if they, like I said, if they act like this over tennis shoes, what will they do when they actually get hungry? So that was the thing that, that drove me said, Hey, that's the thing that, that drove me to, uh, to, to decide to go ahead and, and, and start prepping. Cause you know, I said to myself, you know what, you know, if they act this way over tennis shoes, what, how will they act over, over food? So I cannot allow myself to be dependent on somebody else to get food and and other items needed for survival to my dinner table yeah i mean it's a pretty scary situation when you see how people behave over something as simple as tennis shoes or black friday sales um, and i can think that if people run out of food it would be the apocalypse wouldn't it yes most yes Yes, because because good people that would normally never want to hurt anybody, when they have a starving child, they will do what it takes to feed that child. And that and, makes sense. That's an instinct. And that's why, uh, and I'm guessing you're a prepper too, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's why we prep is to keep us from having to do something like that. Because I, I could not imagine having to hurt 
an innocent human being. I just couldn't imagine ever having to do that. So part of, I feel like my responsibility is that I can make sure that I keep my family fed and safe uh, without ever having to harm an innocent person. Now, since you have seen this and internalized it as a police officer, I'm guessing other police officers have had similar experiences and have become preppers as well. Um, are you aware of other police officer preppers and how prevalent is that? And what was the last, am I aware of other police officer preppers and what? How prevalent is prepping among police officers? So police officers are going to be a lot like every other industry out there. You're going to have a certain percentage that are going to be really cool. You're going to have a certain percentage that are going to be really jerks. You're going to have a certain percentage that are uh, church going, a certain percentage that's going to be um, atheists or agnostic, uh, just a cert certain percentage of everything. Just like right. the rest of society. Yes. Um, but there are things that I see in police officers where, let's say if you have general public, let's say if there's 10 people in the general public, six of them are, let's say, churchgoers and four of them are, say, agnostic or something else. I would say with police officers, you would have a higher percentage, you know, that would be churchgoers. So that kind of spills over the same with, with preppers, with police officers being preppers. I do know of quite a few uh, police officers that are preppers. And um, so I would say, let's say if you are an electrician and in, in, in your electrician shop, if there's 10 electricians, let's say that two of those 10 electricians are preppers, I would bet that if you were in a police department, it would probably be three or four police officers out of that 10 that would be preppers at, at some level. And like everything, there's always that spectrum, you know, how, how deep somebody is a prepper because, you know, I have over a year's worth of dried good foods and, 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 uh, freeze-dried foods and stuff like that for my family over a year's worth. And whereas somebody else might have only three months, but they would still be considered a prepper. So um, it kind of a funny story. Um, I was working a pretty major burglary case, and we were relying on cell phone records uh, to, to try to crack this. Uh, and I said burglary, it was robbery. It was armed robbery where these two guys came in and, and uh, held a, this gas station attendant at gunpoint and beat her up. And we just really terrorized this girl. So anyways, um, I had these cell phone records trying to place this, uh, this, this robber at the scene of the crime, at the scene of the robbery. And I was having a hard time deciphering them. So I ended up having a police officer from a completely different agency and another and a third police officer from a completely different agency. And we all ended up in this office and we're just pouring through these cell phone records of this robbery suspect. And as we're, as we're talking, I think we started talking about gardening first. And then I mentioned that, you know, yeah, I like to garden, but I like to use heirloom seeds. And then, and then somebody else brought one of the other police officers brought up that he likes to garden, but he also does uh, rainwater collection and then I think I brought up oh yeah you know what yeah and then I also have a Berkey 
And then the uh, third officer ended up piping up. And he says, yeah, you know what? I got about 200 pounds of uh, rice and beans. And <laughs> uh, before we knew it, we were like, you're a prepper too? Yeah, I'm a prepper too. So it was just really funny that, uh, you know, while we knew each other, we all worked for three different agencies. Um, and then we all ended up, you know, once we sat down and started talking, all three of us were, all three of us were prepper. So just yeah. kind of a funny story there. But, uh, anyways, it took a long time to answer your question. Uh, there are a lot of, not every police officer, but there are quite a few police officers that are preppers. Now that's also in my area where it's a very conservative area. If that you, makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. If you get into a more liberal area, you probably would have the same amount of police officers that were preppers compared to the general um, society around there. A much smaller percentage. And, and by the way, you can't be a prepper without having a Berkey, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. A, Berkey, <laughs> the a Berkey and then other backup means too. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, EP, we're getting towards the end of the show. And I want to say that it's really been wonderful having you on. You've, you're a fountain of information. I'd love to have you back on again, perhaps for a longer session. Uh, but in the meantime, I, I um, just want to wish you all the best. And I know you have your hands full with a lot of activity going on right now. But if you would, could you please tell people where they can learn more about you and talk about your YouTube channel? Sure. Um just go to YouTube and just search ethical preparedness. Um, one of the big things about the reason why I did my YouTube channel was I just saw as when I first started prepping and I was scaring YouTube for all these, you know, don't learn about prepping. I was just seeing a lot of misinformation in, in with prepping channels. They also a lot of times talk about self-defense and stuff like that too. And so, I was just seeing a lot of bad information out there. Now you see a lot of good information too, but I also seen a lot of bad information. And so I was like, man, I've got to put, you know, I'm going to start a channel that uh, where it's, it's realistic. Um, the information that I give is going to be good, relevant information for the, uh, the prepping, prepping community. And, and so many, so many channels I had seen so many channels that really go out that it's going that the SHTF is going to be Mad Max instead of something that's more realistic you know mm -hmm. and uh, so I was like man I gotta I gotta put do a channel out there where I'm giving more realistic information of more realistic what would happen how things would go down and then also how violence and use of force and stuff like that actually goes down. So I did up my YouTube channel again, ethical preparedness, because it's all about being uh, prepared where we are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're not going to be only violence that we, that comes from us is in protection of people and never out just to, to harm somebody else. And so, yep. Ethical preparedness, uh, YouTube channel. Wonderful. Thank you again for your time and the best to you and your family. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Very good. Have a good night, sir. You too. Goodbye. Goodbye.